Thank you for listening to the Starburns Audio Podcast Network. We have so many great comedy shows to add to your playlist. Just last week on Starburns Audio, on Ghosted by Roz Dresfelez, Busy Phillips talks about a creepy paranormal encounter she had in Oxford, England, and listens to ghost voices captured by ghost hunters. On Small Doses, Amanda Seals talks to her insecure co-star, writer, actress, and producer Issa Rae about the side effects of being a boss. And introducing That Black Ass Show, a new podcast with Dulce Sloan. Check out a teaser episode now featuring comedians Roy Wood Jr., Thea Vidal, Derek Gaines, and Willie Hunter, with full episodes available starting Wednesday, April 22nd. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Search Starburns Audio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast platform for a full list of our shows, featuring hosts like Tim Heidecker, Open Mike Eagle, and Adam Conover. Don't forget to follow us on IG and Twitter at Starburns Audio. Enjoy the show. And remember, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep laughing. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of an internet affair turned murderous. But first, your true crime headlines. The prime suspect in a Pennsylvania homicide was arrested on the beach in Florida one day after the state reopened beaches for physical activity. Jacksonville police were patrolling the beach to ensure that people were following the rules, which allow for active recreation, such as walking or swimming. Sunbathing or sitting in chairs on the beach is still prohibited. Officers encountered 30-year-old Mario Matthew Gatti loitering near the dunes. They learned that he had an active warrant for his arrest in connection with the January shooting death of 33-year-old Michael Coover Jr. in Pennsylvania, and he was taken into custody without incident. Gatti is being held in the Duval County Jail as a fugitive from justice. Police responding to a separate incident at a Bronx apartment building found the badly decomposed body of a young woman inside her apartment, and her death has now been ruled a homicide. Officers noticed a foul smell in the building and traced it to the apartment of 22-year-old Dominique Ben David, whose badly decomposed body was discovered inside the residence. A next-door neighbor reported having smelled the foul odor for several weeks before the discovery of the victim's body. The neighbor also reported that she often heard yelling and arguing from the apartment before the noise abruptly stopped a few weeks ago. Ben David's death has been ruled a homicide. She was known to have shared the apartment with a man, a woman, and a child. No arrests have been made in the case, and the investigation is ongoing. A 57-year-old man who is currently serving a lengthy prison sentence in Nevada is now facing new charges for the 1981 rape and murder of a 16-year-old honor student in California. 16-year-old Amina Scott was last seen leaving her home in Oakland around 3.30 in the afternoon on December 23, 1981. The 4'8", 80-pound teenager planned to walk to the dentist's office to have her braces removed. She never returned home. 
Her body was found the next morning in a parking lot. She had been stabbed to death and sexually assaulted. The suspect, Jewel Henry Collins, was tied to the cold case through DNA, which was uploaded to the National Database in 2019. Collins has been incarcerated in the state of Nevada since 1992, when he began serving a sentence of 25 years to life for the sexual assault of a woman in the town of Sparks. He was charged with Scott's death in September of last year, but was not extradited to California to face prosecution until April 17th. He is scheduled to return to court on May 8th and has not yet entered a plea. Coming up, the first known internet murder case involving sex, lies, and a chat room. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Now, the story of Bruce and Cherie Miller. Bruce and Cherie met and lived in Flint, Michigan, the blue-collar town known as the Vehicle City because of its history in car manufacturing. Cherie grew up in a trailer park and left home to live on her own at age 16. By the time she met Bruce, 10 years later, she was twice divorced, raising three kids, and working as a bookkeeper for his company. Bruce was 47 then, divorced three times, and had nearly 30 years' work at General Motors under his belt. Passionate about cars, he had also purchased an auto yard to run on the side, mostly as a hobby. He fell for Cherie quickly and hard, and the feelings seemed to be mutual. After a short stint of dating, they were married. In an interview with Oxygen, Bruce's brother Chuck told reporter Chuck Miller that his brother considered Cherie to be the perfect wife. Some of Bruce's friends, on the other hand, weren't so sure. They felt protective, given the sizable age difference and economic disparities between the two, and they believed Cherie spent the couple's money recklessly. Cherie continued to work, however, at that time as a salesperson for Mary Kay Cosmetics. Bruce supported her work, which often involved traveling to various states and direct sales in clients' homes. As a gift, he bought her a computer to better run her business. Aware of friends' and loved ones' skepticism, Cherie assured them that although she was a wild child, he was settling her down. One night in November 1999, just seven months into their marriage, Cherie was at home talking to Bruce by phone while he worked at the auto yard. Bruce told Cherie he had a customer and had to cut the call short. She later told Dateline's Hoda Kotb. Cherie said she figured Bruce would finish up with that customer, pick up the pizza they had ordered for dinner, and head home to dine with the family and relax. Only, he never showed up. As hours ticked by, Cherie called the yard repeatedly. She phoned the restaurant they'd ordered dinner from, too. No sight of him there, either. Once she alerted Bruce's brother and sister-in-law, they headed to the auto yard to check on him, coming upon a grisly sight. Bruce on the ground, behind a desk, covered in blood. They called 911, needing an ambulance fast. When police and EMS arrived, it was too late. On the surface, the scene looked like a robbery. Bruce's wallet and cash in his pocket, close to $2,000, were gone. Soon after, Cherie's stepdad showed up at her home in a police car. He just shook his head, Cherie told Cotby. 
That's all it took. He just came in the house shaking his head and he had been crying. So I knew. I knew that he was gone. Break-ins weren't uncommon in the salvage yard, according to Cherie, but murder took such crimes to a whole new level. Earlier that day, she said she recalled some odd comments from customers like, what did you have to do to get that kind of wedding band? When they wouldn't stop, she threatened to call the police and the customers left. Investigators looked into that run-in, but nothing seemed suspect. While looking into Bruce's associates, they learned that employee John Hutchinson had been investigated for tampering with vehicle identification numbers. He also owed Bruce $2,000 and couldn't provide a solid alibi for the night of his death. Police never arrested him, though. Month after month passed without any physical evidence linking the man or anyone else with the scene. Then, in the town of Odessa, Missouri, over 600 miles away, another violent death broke the case wide open. Former police officer Jerry Cassidy was found slumped in a living room chair with a Bible open in his lap. Near him stood a briefcase, holding cards, a CD, a computer hard drive, a sonogram, papers that appeared to be transcripts from an online chat, along with a suicide note addressed to his parents. According to court records, the letter described an affair he'd had with none other than Cherie Miller. He said she had been pregnant twice with his children, and that Bruce Miller had ended both pregnancies through violence and threats. The messages also revealed Cherie's wish to kill her husband. Cassidy also claimed that Cherie helped with his murder, stating it like this, I drove them there and killed him. Cherie was involved and helped set it up. I have all the proof and I'm sending it to the police. She will get what's coming. She just wanted all her money and no more husband. Well, she got her wish. But she is soon to learn that she can't do that to people. Investigators determined that Cherie first met Cassidy at a casino in Reno, where she was attending a Mary Kay convention, three months after marrying Bruce. Things grew steamy between Cherie and the former cop immediately. They would meet several more times in person, relying on internet chats and email in between. Most of the transcripts on the hard drive found in Jerry's briefcase were deeply romantic, sexually explicit, or both. Some included revealing photos and video. They used the screen names Jerry's Fool and Cherie's Fool, saying things like this, him, I will be your rock, I will be your soulmate. Her, tonight is a night for a warm fire and plenty of cuddling. Him, my heart aches every minute we are not together. Her, winter is only good for one thing, that is getting snowed in and loving all day. The messages mentioned their plans to get married, the pregnancies described in the suicide note, along with photos of positive tests and bruises Cherie attributed to abuse. Cherie said Bruce raped her, causing one miscarriage, and that he forced her to have an abortion for the other pregnancy. One message seemed to quote Bruce, Now you won't be responsible for any little bastards. In Cassidy's note to his parents, he apologized for the pain he caused, but said he had to end his life and, quote, Here is why. After Cherie and I got together, I found out she was married. She lied to me and lied to me, made promises, as you well know, and I believe them all. Further down, he added, I'm sorry, Mom. 
Those were my babies. I loved them. I wanted them. I drove there, and I killed him. He claimed to have proof of Cherie's involvement in the murder on its way to police, presumably meaning the briefcase contents. She will get what's coming, he said. I have been so stupid, but now you know the real story of why I went into such a state of depression. Soon after finding all of this, police brought Cherie in for questioning. Without revealing their discoveries, Cassidy's suicide, the messages or the note, they asked her a series of questions, such as, did she have life insurance? Frustrated, she got up to leave. If they weren't going to arrest her, she was out of there. And so they did arrest her, charging her with murder and conspiracy linked to Bruce's death. Peter Plummer, a prosecutor with a high-tech crimes unit, said Cherie had complete control over Cassidy. By stating things that would, quote, really kind of bring his blood to both a sexual and emotional boil, he told CNN, she could get him to do anything. No one in the world did she have more control over than him. Lieutenant Kevin Shanlian, the lead detective on the case, said he couldn't differentiate the truth from her lies anymore and, quote, he was going to be the white knight for Cherie Miller. He was going to kill the dragon and claim his property. Cassidy's suicide note confirmed this. He wrote, I was so blind and so stupid and so much in love. Little did I know she never meant any of it. She just wanted all her money and no more husband. During the trial, prosecutors made the case that Cherie Miller plotted and manipulated her lover into killing Bruce. She was never pregnant or abused, they said, and they had proof of her lies. Her tubes had been tied for years when she met Cassidy. The pregnancy test photos and sonogram, and even the image of a bruised torso, they said, weren't hers. The text messages were considered the smoking gun for the prosecution's case. Some of the most striking messages involved the murder itself. Her. Jerry, I am scared. If this don't work, he will hurt me bad. Him, it'll work. Her. Now you need to listen to me for a minute. I will call Bruce at 5 p.m. Is the gun loud? Him. Somewhat. Her. Just do it and get the hell out of there. Shortly after, Cherie added, Are you going to be able to live with this the rest of your life? Because I can. He replied, I love you. Yes, I can. Only, apparently, he couldn't. When Cotby asked Plummer about the magnitude of the instant messages, he said in some ways they were the biggest gotcha evidence because how often do you have a transcript of a conspiracy to murder? Not only transcripts, but accurate ones, detailing the murder almost exactly as it would happen. On November 8, 1999, Jerry Cassidy drove the 600-plus miles to Michigan and met up with Cherie, where the state said she gave him her cell phone to stay in touch. She then called him on that phone shortly after 6.15 p.m., which they took to mean that he had arrived to the yard as planned. Cherie then phoned Bruce and was on the line when Cassidy pulled up to the yard in his truck. Bruce said to Cherie, someone's here, then hung up. That he used the word someone indicates it was someone he didn't recognize, prosecutors alleged. Cassidy entered the office and said something to Bruce to get his attention, then shot him dead. At 6.47 p.m., Cassidy used Cherie's cell phone 
to call her home and let it ring just once, signaling mission accomplished, then headed back to Missouri. And the instant messages and emails between the two gradually diminished, then stopped altogether. One month later, Cherie had a new boyfriend. In court, Cherie's defense team painted a different picture. Instead of a calculated affair used to commit murder, they said it was a fling gone wrong. Attorney David Nicola said the entire instant message stream could have been made by Cassidy, who he portrayed as a drug-addicted, suicidal loser, who set Cherie up to hurt her for rejecting him. So vindictive, he made up a story to lash out at her from the grave. The relationship ended, Nicola said, and he couldn't handle that. Cherie took the stand, testifying for several hours. She admitted to the affair with Cassidy and lying to him repeatedly, including about the supposed pregnancies. But she said she never plotted to kill her husband. The entire affair was a fantasy that played out only online. After 15 hours of deliberation, the jury found Cherie Miller guilty of first-degree premeditated murder in what's considered the first internet murder case. The trial gleaned national attention and prompted the 2003 book Fatal Error and the 2006 Lifetime movie Fatal Desire. While in prison in 2007, Cherie Miller was diagnosed with PTSD. The following year, a federal judge determined that Cassidy's suicide note should not have been allowed in court because its author was dead and couldn't be cross-examined. The judge overturned Cherie Miller's conviction and granted her a new trial. She was released on bond, meaning bail was set and paid, ensuring that she would make all required court appearances. The case went back and forth in appellate courts until 2012, when her conviction was reinstated. Now 48 years old, she remains in prison in Michigan. In April of 2016, after nearly two decades of proclaiming her innocence and multiple efforts by attorneys and the courts, she finally confessed to manipulating Jerry Cassidy, calling Bruce Miller a great man and the only man who ever loved her for who she was. I destroyed a lot of lives, she wrote in the four-page letter, which described a double life and her fear of getting caught. Instead of my family or Bruce's family finding out what I really was, she went on, I thought I could cover it up by having Bruce murdered. I cannot deny this anymore. Bruce Miller is remembered by loved ones as easygoing, liked by everyone who knew him, the type of person who enjoyed helping people, and an all-around great guy. Cars were his first love, until he met Cherie Miller. He is buried beside a windy side road in Mount Morris, Michigan, about 70 feet from a wishing well. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.